John chapter 12, verse 1. John writes, six days before Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom who Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served and Lazarus was one of those reclining at, with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning, for life and breath and every good thing that you give us. We are grateful for this space to sing your praises, to hear Bible-saturated prayers that adore you. We are thankful for this place where we can sit and we can listen and hear uh, your word. And so I'm praying right now as we, as we do sit and we listen and we ponder what you have recorded, have you, what you have led John to record in this book, that you would give us ears to hear, you'd give us eyes to see, that we would see great and glorious truths in your word, and then we'd live in light of what we've seen. So would your spirit help us towards that end, in Christ's name, amen. I meant to say this before uh, the kids left, I wanted to tell them, when, when we send our kids out, uh, there's, a, there's a goal, right? We, we don't, we're not just trying to get kids out of the way. <laughs> we're just like, hey, you know, if you guys could go out there, we're going to kind of do some things in here and we don't want you in our way. It's not the goal. Uh, instead, when our kids go out there, they're, they're going through something called the Gospel Project. And our hope and my prayer is this God that we sing about. I mean, this, 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 these songs that, that stir our affections, stir our hearts for Jesus, this God that we sing about and worship and praise that every one of them would know him. So they go out there to learn about this Jesus that we sing to, this Jesus that we talk about. They go out there to learn the good news. And so pray for them and pray for our workers as they invest in our kids. And if you're in here, my goal's not different for you. My, my goal and what I'm, what I'm praying and what we pray before the service, we meet about 9.30 and some of us pray before the service. And one of the things that we pray is that as we meet together, all the elements of the service, everything that we do from singing to reading to praying to preaching to taking the Lord's Supper, everything that we do, what we're praying and asking the Spirit to do is stir your heart, stir your affections for Jesus, And so I'm praying that that would happen here, that your heart would be stirred, that you would see the worth of Jesus and your affections would match his worth. That's the aim. And I think that's what you're going to see in this text. So growing up in the South, as I did, I don't remember knowing anybody. And I thought about it this week. And, I, and maybe I could point to a couple of people. For, for the most part, I don't remember people who would say 
that they were not Christians, or at least wouldn't openly confess that they weren't Christians. Everybody I knew, and this is maybe just I wasn't paying attention, that, that could be the case as well, but growing up, I just remember thinking everybody's a Christian. Everybody believes in Jesus, or at least says they do. Um, and perhaps, again, I was just naive. But I don't remember the thought ever crossing my mind that I'm hanging out with somebody who openly rejects Christ. And in the West, for a long time, you've had something called cultural Christianity. You've probably heard that phrase. Christianity is simply part of the, the culture that we live in. More, more than likely, for most of, uh, hit, most of your history in this world, maybe not so much today, but uh, particularly in the South, most of my growing up, it was assumed that the dominant religious outlook for my neighbors was that of Christianity. Now, whether or not they were just nominal Christians or devout Christians, Christianity was just the default uh, religious outlook of my neighbors. At least I could assume that for the most part. And, and there were often social and political benefits aligning with the church, right? So you go back to the 1970s, the moral majority. You go back uh, to the earlier part of the United States, and there were some benefit to aligning with the church. If you're a politician in the South, it's actually worth your while to find a church to go to on Sunday. You could gain some political capital, right? So this is cultural Christianity. Everybody believes in Jesus. And if I go to church, I get some benefits, some earthly benefit. There's some political power I could garner if I show up on Sunday. So that, that's in the West what I mean by cultural Christianity. You assume that most people uh, adopt some type of relig Christian religious outlook and there was something to be gained, earthly speaking, politically maybe, from aligning yourself with, with the church. And so again, that's the atmosphere I grew up in in eastern Kentucky. That was my surroundings. And I, again, I remember thinking that everybody I knew believed in Jesus. We were going to, in high school, you're we going to party on the weekend on Friday, Saturday, but then Sunday we're all going to get up and I'm going to see all my friends at church. That's what we're going to do. So I think back to those days and I, and I think about the people I was around. I think about myself and the crowd that I ran in and I remember, yes, we would say we believe in Jesus. But when I look back there, what, what's missing? What was missing? From, yeah, we believe but I don't remember much affection for Christ. That's putting it nicely. I don't remember any affection for Jesus. I remember, yeah, we all believe. We're all going to show up on Sunday. Are you a Christian? Yeah, I'm a Christian. Do you believe in Jesus? Yeah, I believe in Jesus. But no affection for Christ. I don't remember anybody who was a lover of Jesus. And I don't think it's gone away, and I don't think that's just peculiar to Eastern Kentucky, I, I, I still think of people in my life who claim to know Jesus would tell you they believe in Jesus and yet I see no fire of affection for him. And I think what you see in this text is a picture of someone who believes in, or two people, someone who believes in Jesus and loves him. They believe in their affection for him combined. And somebody else who would say, yeah, I believe, I believe something, yet they love something else. And I think you see it in Mary and Judas. I think this is a story of contrasts. When you read this story, I've heard different people preach it in different ways, but when you read this story, what I think is going on is there's a story of contrasts. 
between the love for Jesus that Mary has and the love of money or self that Judas portrays. And I think it's painted in bright colors. And so what I want us to see, what I want you to see, what I want us to grasp is, is the worth of Jesus. That He's worth, worthy of all our affections. His worth is amazing. And our affections for Jesus should match the worth of Jesus. So that's where we're going. I want your affections, my affections, our children's affections, I want the affections of the world to match the worth of Jesus. And when that matches, it's a beautiful thing. And when it doesn't, it's tragic. So, big idea. Here's the one thing I want you to walk away with. Jesus is worthy of your deepest affections. So let's dive into the text. And the first thing I want to do before we go there is I simply want you to pay attention in this text to who's at dinner. The guest list is pretty ridiculous. So before we get to Mary and Judas, just pay attention to the guest list at this banquet. So likely what's happening when you get to chapter 12, they're throwing a feast for Jesus. This isn't just any old dinner party. Here comes Jesus. Here comes the one who's opened the eyes of the blind. Here comes the one who's healed the lame. Here comes the one who raises the dead, right? So here comes Jesus. We, we, this is an amazing person coming to town. Let's throw a party. Let's throw a feast. We're going to celebrate the fact that he's cleansed lepers and caused the lion to leap for joy and the blind to see and the dead to live. So you, if you read the parallel account, so the parallel account to this would be Matthew 26. If you read that, whose house are they at? Simon the leper. Well, that's significant. Here's Jesus at the house of Simon the leper. Right? This is not somebody's house you want to go. So if somebody has leprosy, I'm not coming over for dinner. Right? This is what Jesus does. Here's Simon the leper, or once was a leper, and here Jesus comes to hang out with him. Jesus is sitting with Simon the leper. He's sitting with a guy who was dead not long ago, and then there, there are these ladies who are there who are serving them. And this isn't the powerful. This isn't the elite. Here are the outcasts of society. Here are the marginalized. And that's where Jesus chooses to dine. And I sat and I looked at this text and I'm like, well, what should I say about it? And I said, I'm just kind of marveling at the moment. Marveling at the fact that Jesus is happy to sit at the table with the poor and the needy and the destitute. Marveling at the fact that Jesus leans in to the least of these, right? This is who Jesus is. He leans in to the least of these. He leans in to the poor. He leans in to the needy. Doesn't lean away doesn't stiff arm them, doesn't think, you know, I, I know that, the, yeah, I, I kind of feel bad for him, but I, I really want to go sit at this table. I really want to go to, to this powerful, prominent person's house. He doesn't lean away from the poor. He doesn't lean away from the marginalized. He leans in. He leans towards them. He dines with them. Those the world doesn't hold in high esteem, that's where you find Jesus. King of kings, Lord of lords, most powerful person on the planet. And you find him with the outcasts of society. You find him at Simon the lepers. You find him eating with a man who was just buried a few days ago and the authorities are still out for blood. But that's where Jesus is. So this week I had a chance to sit in a meeting and engage with others in our community, listening and learning about how we can care for those um, 
for the least of those in our city, in our community. I listen to reports from the superintendent of our school system and as he's trying to care for our minority students and families. And there's some great things going on in our schools to try to care for um, the least of these or, or for minorities and other things. And he, he shared some things that were going on. And then he, he shared uh, uh, some things that were disconcerting. And I think when I think of Northfield, I think of a place that, that's uh, progressive in the sense that trying to lean in and create a safe place for minorities, create a safe place for people from all walks of life. And, and Northfield kind of has that reputation. And then he's sharing some things and said underneath that veneer, there are some really hard things going on, some real challenges as we try to care for people that don't look like me. So we thought about how we could do that. We discussed uh, planning the city's uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Day coming up uh, on uh, January the 20th. Uh, we heard from the community that were some were struggling in other ways. There were some people there talking about some other things that were going on in their life. And, and I sat there, and this was my first meeting in this, in this group, and, and I just listened, and at times I was just sad, just sad to hear of the struggles and the problems that people face. We, we know, right? We know generically you can say, yeah, people suffer and, and, and there's hard things going on in people's lives. And in your own life, you know that there are hard things. And then you sit in a meeting and you're hearing from people that are struggling with some really sad and hard things. There's a lot of hurt. And I watched people in this room listen and they were burdened for the people we were hearing from, burdened for the problems that some of... Uh, our citizens are facing burdened for their fellow men and women. And I'm sitting there and, and I couldn't help but think about Jesus. I mean, one, I'm studying this text for this week and I'm sitting in that meeting and sitting with hurting people and here's Jesus sitting with hurting people. I couldn't help but think about Jesus. I couldn't help but think about the fact that He loves the least. He cares for the hurting. He runs towards the broken. He doesn't, when you read that verse, six days before Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany. He walks into Bethany and He doesn't expect the mayor of the city to be waiting on Him to walk in, right? He doesn't walk into the city and say, hey, point me to the most powerful and elite family that you know of so I can go meet with them and because so, I want some influence. He doesn't do that. He says, I'm going to go over here to the marginalized. I'm going to go over here to the outcast. I'm going to go over here and have dinner with the least of these. And the takeaway from just pondering the guest list at who is at that dinner for me, the, guest, the takeaway was, does that mark my life? Do I lean towards the hurting? Do I lean towards the broken? Or do I lean away? Am I eager to serve those who are in need? Or is that too much of an inconvenience? Am I happy to sit with the least of these? Or am I afraid what people will think of me if they see me hanging out with those type of people? And so my prayer is that I would be marked by that which marks Jesus. That's who I'm called to imitate, right? Right? That's what Christianity is. You're a disciple of Jesus. You're a follower of Jesus. We don't just walk behind Him. We try to imitate Him. We want to, to walk as Jesus walked, live as Jesus lived. And here's one who leaned into the poor and needy. And I pray our church would be a place that's not concerned about power. We're not concerned about 
prestige or prominence, the fame of our own name. No, we, we're concerned about the fame of Jesus and the good of our neighbors. So we lean towards the poor. We lean towards the needy. Because it's who you are, by the way. It's who we are. We are poor and needy sinners. Bankrupt. You think about your account as a sinner before a holy God and you are bankrupt. But Jesus doesn't stiff arm you. He lays his life down for you. And we come to Christ and we find the one that we need. So let us be like Christ and lean towards the hurting, lean towards the broken, care for our neighbors for the glory of Jesus. Now, this text is not mainly about having dinner with those less fortunate, right? It's not mainly about that, but you can certainly take that away from it, and you should. But there's bigger things going on here than who Jesus is eating with. I think when you look at at John 12, this text is about the value and the worth of Jesus. That's what this text is about, the value and the worth of Jesus. There are two people, again, two responses. One person responds to the presence of Jesus with extravagant worship. The other person shows their true colors. They don't love Jesus, they love money. So let's look at the two. Let's look at Mary first. If you look at verse 3, Jesus is at the dinner table and Mary wants to love Him. Mary wants to worship Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. This is an extravagant act. If you look at verse 5, this is worth 300 denarii. You know how much that is? That's 300 days of wages. So I don't know what you make, and you don't have to tell me, but if you just take your salary and you break it down and just say, how much do I make in one day? And you take that and you times it by 300, that's how much this perfume costs. Now, that's a lot of money for perfume, and I have to admit I've never been tempted to spend that much money on smells good stuff. But here, Mary has this pure nard, this perfume worth all this money. This extravagant amount. And what does she do with it? Jesus is there. He's worth it. She doesn't simply believe in Jesus. Her affections overflow for Jesus. She believes, right? She believes that He is who He says He is. She's seen Him raise the dead. She's seen him do these amazing things. And what has it led to? It's led to her affections for Jesus overflowing for Jesus. But then you get Judas. Not everybody's happy about this decision. Judas decides he'll speak up. Verse 5. Why was this ointment, this perfume, not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Imagine being in that room. The wicked love to cover their tracks. We could sell this thing and we could give to the poor. And then on the face of it, he's not wrong. He's probably leaning into Deuteronomy 15, caring for the poor. On the face of it, he's probably not wrong. We could sell this and give to the poor. But John tells us what's going on, verse 6. He said this, not because he cared about the poor, 
but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Ah, now we see. Now we see what's going on. Judas doesn't love the poor. He loves money. He loves himself. His concern was not selling the perfume, feeding the hungry. He wanted the money bag to get bigger. We sell that thing, that money bag gets heavier. I could probably take more. More money in it, take a little bit more. Nobody's going to notice. You look at this, and what becomes clear is here is Judas following Jesus, not because he loves Jesus. Here is Judas following Jesus because he loves the earthly benefit that Jesus will give him. There's a difference, right? He doesn't follow Jesus because he loves Jesus. I'll follow him because he's going to give me this other thing. And that other thing, that's my, that's my desire. That's what I love. That's what I want. It's the health, wealth, prosperity gospel is what it is. Follow Jesus, you'll be healthy. Oh, I'll follow Jesus if I'll be healthy. I don't want Jesus, I want health. Right? That's the end. That's my goal. That's what I want. So I'll follow Jesus, He gives me health. You follow Jesus, you'll be wealthy. Oh, I'll follow Jesus. He'll be, if I follow Jesus, He'll give me some wealth. I'll do that. That's Judas. I'll follow Jesus if the money bag gets bigger. I can take some more. That's who Jesus, Judas is. But how does Jesus respond to him? His responses are always so good. <laughs> Leave her alone. I can hear it now. I, I don't think it was just like, Judas, just kind of leave her alone, man. I think, leave her alone. Stop. And I think the way you read this, because if you just read it in the ESV, it's complicated. I think his so that is answering the question. Judas, why wasn't this sold? Then jump, so that she could keep it for the day of my burial. I think you read it that way, it makes sense. Wasn't sold because she kept it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. So here, here's my paraphrase, I think, what's going on. Stop bothering her. My death is on the horizon. She's prepared me for the cross. The poor you'll always have with you until my kingdom comes. So yes, care for them. Sell your possessions. Give freely. Love well. But right now, in this moment, Mary has recognized that in her presence is the Savior of the world. The long-awaited Messiah who has power over sickness, disease, and death. She has seen my worth, Judas. And she has worshipped. So do you, do you see, when I say the text is not mainly about Jesus' dinner habits, this text is about the worth of Jesus. Mary sees the value and the worth of Jesus and she worships. That's beautiful. Judas misses the worth and the value of Jesus and ends up selling his soul. And that is tragic. So here's how I would ask you to go away. Ask this. Does my affection for Jesus match the worth of Jesus? I mean, just think about it. Think about who He is. God of God. God of gods. King of kings. Lord of lords. The one who lays down His life. 
so that you might live, right? He lays down his life, not to just lay it down, but he lays it down so that you might live forever. We've hit this note several times over the past year or so. I want to hit it again. He knows everything about us and still goes to the cross to pay our debt. I want that to be, you know how we sing certain songs and we, get, we know the rhythm, right? We, we know that song. We love to sing that song. We love to think about that song. We can even, uh, we can whistle the tune in our head. Uh, Andy Griffith, right? I can whistle the tune of Andy Griffith. My, not very good at it, but I can do it, right? It just, I just know it. I want this truth to be like a tune that we know. He knows everything about me. He knows all my faults, all my failures, all my sin, everything I've done, am doing, and will do, and still goes to the cross to pay my debt. And if I would trust in Him, I'd find life forever. He is worthy of our affection. But what does it look like? What does that look like? For Mary, it was, without hesitation, breaking a jar of expensive perfume and pouring it out in love of her Savior. What does affection for Jesus look like in your own life? Does it look like anything? Most people in this room know that I love a certain basketball team. I love Kentucky basketball. You come to my house... You'll see a University of Kentucky jacket. Uh, I walked through my um, office today, and there was, I was like, oh, there's my other University of Kentucky sweatshirt that I was looking for yesterday because I like to wear a UK sweatshirt when Kentucky plays basketball. And there was, I have several, but I couldn't find that one. There it was hanging on my door, and it's there. We have a University of Kentucky Snuggie. You know what a Snuggie is? It's a big blanket. You put your arms in. You can snuggle up with it, and it's a University of Kentucky Snuggie. And, it's downstairs. If you want to watch basketball with me, you can wear that one day. Um, I have a signed University of Kentucky football. I have two signed University of Kentucky, signed by Coach Calipari, two basketballs, one by him and one by the women's coach. Um, uh, and so I have uh, just lots of Kentucky stuff, and I mention Kentucky in my sermons. Uh, and if they're playing on television, I normally try and watch the game. And sometimes, uh, you know, particularly in March, I prefer to watch the game by myself. In this past March, uh, TJ decided to show up unannounced, and, and I was a little bit anxious because I was watching March Madness, and Kentucky was playing, and I wanted to be on my best behavior for TJ, and it's hard. So I love <laughs> Kentucky basketball, right? And it's evident. It's evident. I don't have to convince you of it. I don't just say it. My outward actions demonstrate that I love it. Does your life testify to the worth of Jesus or something else? It's not a bad question. I'm not going to answer that for you. I'm not going to tell you this is A, B, and C is what affection for Jesus looks like. You can go pray and think and seek the Spirit answer that in your life but that's something you should ask does my life testify to the worth of Jesus and my affection for him so that's number one does my affection for Jesus match the worth of Jesus and when I say go pray I really mean that you can't conjure up affections just think hard enough do the right things formula put a and B in, and C happens. This is the Spirit's work. You know, he, He's the one. Stirs the affections for Jesus. So pray. 
Number two, last thing. Things can pull us away from Jesus. I think about Judas, what comes to mind are the warning passages in the Bible about money and riches. We aren't warned about money because in and of itself it's evil. Right? Money in and of itself is not evil. But we are warned about money and riches. 1 Timothy 6.10, we're warned that the love of money, not money, love of money, is the foundation of all evil, no, no, all kinds of evil. Right? The love of money, the, the treasuring of money, that's the thing that makes me happy. That's the foundation, the root of all kinds of evil. evil. And the thing is, money, possessions, stuff, stuff can grab your heart. Grab your affections. And if you're not careful, you find that you love things more than you love Jesus. I think it's one of the reasons we don't see the nations flooded with missionaries. Someone starts talking about going overseas and the first thing I think about is confession. Ooh, (laughs) I have to give a lot of stuff up to go over there. And it's certainly right count the cost, but I fear that the cost is too strong a deterrent. Because our stuff, our money, our things, they cloud our view. So, so my point's simple. I'm not saying you have to give everything up. I'm not saying you have to sell everything. I'm not saying you can't buy a new phone or a new car or a new house or go out to eat to a nice restaurant. I have stuff. I have stuff. I have plenty of stuff. So having stuff is not sinful, not wrong or bad necessarily. But I am saying, be careful. I am saying, don't be naive. Don't let the things of the world draw you away from the only one who satisfies your soul. That's the danger, right? You're created. You're created to be satisfied in Jesus Christ. He is, as the psalmist would say, our exceeding joy. That's why you're created. Not to be satisfied in relationships. Not to be satisfied in stuff. Not to be satisfied in anything other ultimately than Jesus of Nazareth. So we sing that song. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. So, does your affections match the worth for Jesus, match the worth of Jesus? And be careful living in this present evil age because stuff can draw you away. Social media is um, pretty depressing, uh, and yet we, we're still on it. Uh, but it can be pretty discouraging. And yet every now and then, every now and then, it can be encouraging. So I, here's something I've been pleasantly surprised by over the last, I'd say, three to five years. I was pleasantly surprised to see friends of mine pursuing Jesus. People haven't, well, I would say friends. Friends, I, they were once friends. I haven't talked to them in 20 years, but people that I knew, grew up with, ran with, to see them quote the Bible, 
to see them making church a priority, to see them talking about their love for God, to see not mere belief, but affection. And that has happened in my life. I was one, I believe, but I could give a rip about Jesus on Monday. That was my life. And by God's grace, by God's grace, not by my effort, not because I'm special, by God's grace, I think, not only do I believe, but my affections are more closely aligned with the worth of Jesus. Yet, nowhere near where there need to be. So, I believe, help my unbelief. I love, but Lord, stir my affections that I might love Jesus more. May the Lord do that in your life this week. May He stir your heart for King Jesus. Let's pray.